Pat, welcome to the Author Forum. I am so happy that we have this time together to talk because I have been a fan of yours for years. And like so many people who've been your loyal readers, I feel like I was a fly on the wall with the Conroy family, watching from different perspectives as the family saga unfolded. Um, you had me at the first sentence of this memoir. <laughs> Because when you say, I've been writing the story of my own life for the past 40 years, I think as a reader, what more do you need to learn as a writer that brings you back to this family story once again? What did you need to learn? It is, um, I needed to learn that I wish I'd been born to a different family. <laughs> And you know, and I you know, and I say this. I, you know, I watch other families, mm. and I fall in love with other families. You know, I almost weep when I see. And fathers have changed a lot since I was a kid. You know, these fathers. You know, and they take their kids to ball games, and then they walk their children through grocery stores mm -hmm. on their. And I'm thinking, what's wrong with that guy? <laughs> And, you know, and so my obsession has been, you know, why my family was like that, mm -hmm. why it was so brutal, why we were so quiet about it. We never, ever discussed it. Uh, we never told about it. Uh, we were looked upon as the perfect family, seven kids. And, you know, we were little kids. Uh, and, and we're these little kids, and you know, you know, I see pictures of ourselves. You know, Dad with little military haircuts, and the girls with very bad, cheap eyeglasses. And it was the 50s, and it was never discussed at all. And why it was it, and it has bothered me some, Maureen, that this has been basically my only subject. Mm -hmm that I wish I'd been a deeper man, a more Tolstoyan man, a more Kentucky-like man. <laughs> you know, it just, but it yeah. did not happen for me. Yeah. This was what I was born to, and I think what I was born to write. Yeah. But this is a memoir. I, I teach a course at Georgetown on the autobiography, and we spend the whole semester furrowing our brow on the, about the question of what separates an autobiography from autobiographical fiction. Right. Why go to the autobiography form? What does it offer that the fiction didn't? Okay, here's what it does. It at least offers, Maureen, and this is, as you know, being an academia, this is debatable. Hmm. <laughs> um, I mean, this is, you know. This, and when I wrote my losing season about my basketball team at the Citadel, mm -hmm. Okay, all the guys, and these guys at the Citadel that I played basketball with, you know, their average IQ is about 85. <laughs> you know, they were very tall, but, you know, the IQ level was low. You don't their, know who's in the audience. You their, better be careful. <laughs> their literary level was lower. Mm -hmm. And I'd go to their books and I'd say, you guys ever read my books? And one of them said... I tried once, Conroy, but yeah. I couldn't get into it. But I've seen all the flicks. Yeah. 
says, I'm writing that book. And I said, guys, here's what I've got to tell you is what you tell your students is essential and very important. You're going to tell me all the stories. And I listened. I questioned them like I questioned my brothers and sisters. I got every story. What did he say? What did you say? What do you remember us saying? We don't know if that's exactly what was said, but as best we can, yeah. let's fit this together. And does that bring you to a deeper truth? Here's what you hope. Here's what, now, here's what, and remember, 85 IQs. They <laughs> distrusted me. Their wives were throwing up in anxiety of what I'd write about their family. And it was awful in my teammates, vicious critics, mm -hmm. not just academic critics. These guys could all beat me up. <laughs> yeah. The book comes out and I warned them. And I said, guys, you must understand this. You haven't read much. <laughs> but you must understand this. When the book comes out and you read it, to you, it's going to sound like the truth. Yeah. Because it's going to be written down and the extraordinary power of that right. is going to sweep you away. The kid, T. Hooper, that was most hostile about the book, hated the book, uh, hated the idea of the book, reads the book, and I'm at Furman University discussing this very thing. Mm -hmm. You know, what is true, you know, why, you know, biography, uh, autobiography, autobiographical fiction. T. Huber stands up in the audience and says, I hated the idea of this book. I hated Pat writing the book. I didn't even like Pat when I was in college. <laughs> he said, but I want to tell the Furman students, every word he said in this book is true. You and I know that is nonsense. <laughs> I think you try to tell the truth. I think that's the difference. I think you make a contract with the reader that you're going to try your best to tell things the way they really happen, not just to make a good story, but that you stick to what you remember to the best of your ability. Was that the contract here? And the contract is also, I try to question everybody that was there yeah. to see their memory. <laughs> My brothers and sisters are the worst. <laughs> you know, for this book, they were, uh, oh. Oh, sorry. Technical difficulties. <laughs> this looks like sexual harassment to me. <laughs> <laughs> but my brothers and sisters were, you know, first of all, I have a sister, Carol, who's a poet in New York, a brilliant woman, who will not talk to me? Right. Okay, I've got this. I'm the only one that remembers her childhood. Mm. And I remember it extraordinarily well because I found her amazing and precocious and brilliant. And I'm the only recorder of this. Yeah. So I have to depend on myself for Carol because she will give me no help. Now the other kids, uh, they're terrified I'm gonna write about them. So, you know, and I was scared to give this book out. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. When, I had the, when the galleys came in, I said, God, I got to give my brothers and sisters. And 
Once again, we're dealing low IQs, <laughs> Southern, Irish, uh, been watching me suspiciously mm -hmm. my entire career. And so I give out these little books, and I said, you know, uh, gee, I hope you like, you know, it's horrifying. And so they come back with things. My brother Jim, the dark one in the family. I mean, Jim has never had a bright day in his life. And I said, Jim, I sent you the book. Did you read it? Yeah. How'd you like it? Well, I can honestly say you wrote a book. <laughs> My brother Mike. Mike, did you read the book? Yeah. Do you want to talk about it? Nope. So I have no idea, you know, with my family, uh, what this is going to be like. It terrified me to write this book. But you dedicated it to your brothers and sisters. Okay, now this is because I'm a weak and cowardly man. <laughs> it had nothing to do, it had nothing at all to do with my love of my brothers and sisters. It was, I was hoping by dedicating the book to them, they would think, they would soften their attitude first. <laughs> so you start off with a fiction. Yes, yeah, it was okay. a total fiction. Okay. How about this, Maureen? My brother Mike, I said, it took over a month for him to read the book. I said, Mike, have you looked at the book yet? Nah, and I've had been so busy. I said, you retired, Mike. <laughs> he said, oh, I've been, my Lord, I've been doing one thing after another. I said, if you didn't open the book up to see the dedication, not yet. I told you, I didn't have time. So this, this kind of thing, and what you and your class go through of what is true, what is fiction, what is, I can't help you with. Because I simply okay. do not know. Yeah. And I go the best I can. And here's one thing I do know. If you write nothing, these stories disappear. Mm. If you say, I cannot do it because I cannot tell the truth of this, that story evaporates forever. Yeah. And I wanted this story of the Conroy family to live on and someone else can write it if they see it differently later. Well, you know, I like detective fiction. So I, I kind of looked at your writing career and evolved a hypothesis about why you're writing more autobiography these hypothesis days. Hypothesis excites me. <laughs> I know, I know. I'm trying to be Sherlockian here. Uh, but your dad died in 1998. Your mom died 15 years earlier. Early, right. You began writing more autobiographical books after your dad's death. I mean, I know The Water is Wide is sometimes classified as a memoir, but I think it started life as an autobiographical novel. But you've, you've got My Losing Season, My Life in Books, and now this, The Death of Santini. Is, is there something about the death of your parents that maybe opens the gates a little bit more to writing stories that are true, that you're labeling true, that might be offensive, that they might correct if they were alive. They're not here anymore. Does that, is that free? 
Yeah, I kind of like both of them being dead when this book came out. Um, and I feel bad about saying that. I just, you know, but there's, there's things, I remember when the great Santini came out, my mother, who was very literary and didn't go to college, but she read everything. And she came up and she was furious with me over the great Santini. And she told me one night after I cooked her dinner and she said, the only shame I feel is that I raised you to be such a mediocre novelist. And I said, you know, mom, you know, critics have agreed with you. But it's wonderful to get the person you love the most on earth to absolutely corroborate their judgment. And she said, you gave the book to him. You thought that he ran that household. You thought that he was the master of that household. You weren't bright enough to see it, son. I ran that house. The woman was behind everything that happened in that house. I could control him easily, easily. And I told her at that time, I said, Mom, I saw that light. And I want to promise you something. If I live long enough, I'll get to you down the road. (laughs) And I was almost happy that mom was not alive when the Prince of Tides came out. Because I think that book would have wounded her, horrified her, and everything else. You know, of all the stories you tell in this book, and, and you tell some doozies, um, you, tell, you tell stories about physical abuse, emotional abuse. You also tell a lot of funny stories. The story that, honestly, my, my jaw dropped open was the story you told about writing the great Santini. You're living in Atlanta, and your dad is separated and then divorced from your mom. And as you're writing The Great Santini, your father, Don Conroy, is coming over every morning to have coffee with you. Every morning. This is the guy who you've said, I prayed that he wouldn't come back alive from Vietnam. This is the the man you hate with good reason. He's having coffee with you every morning. He doesn't know what you're writing with The Great Santini. The book is published. It comes out. You give him a copy. He says, son, you named the book after me. I'm so touched. (laughs) And then two hours later, as you describe it, he calls up, and I can't quote what he said, I'm sure, because it would be too offensive. How do you sit down and have coffee with your dad every morning when you've had this relationship where you're ready to kill each other and you're writing about him that way? This is, you know, the Conway family has very little moral limits <laughs> to our actions. And, you know, I noticed he was the only father I was handed out, yeah. you know, when I was a kid. And it has bothered, you know, it always bothered me. You know, I couldn't make Dad proud of me. When I would write poetry or short stories when I was a kid, you know, he'd say, how's my favorite homo? And gosh, Dad, I'm doing great. And he said, and then 
he, he would kill me in this way. You know, Pat Conroy, that's not, you know, you know, you know what a crappy name. It's like an Irish bus driver from the Bronx. I mean, you know, it's, and I was reading Ernest Hemingway, and I was reading, you know. So I went to an F. Scott Fitzgerald period. So I wrote poems and short stories for one short year in Beaufort, and I would sign them D. Patrick Conroy. <laughs> so my father gets this, and he goes, would D. Patrick pass me the milk, please? <laughs> would D. Patrick pass me the potatoes after his bed? So, you know, anywhere I went was a humiliation. Mm -hmm. I tried to play basketball. I tried to play baseball. It did not work for me and yeah. Dad. So I think, Maureen, just him coming over was... You know, I can always, um, if somebody makes a gesture, mm -hmm. you know, I usually try to accept that gesture for whatever it is. And Dad, and especially after the Great Santini came out, he hated that book. But he kept coming to coffee, and he said, you know, you're the worst writer in America. Mm -hmm. And I would say, how would you know, Dad, you've never read another writer in America? <laughs> And he said, you're crap. It, he would, there was a bad re review from the New York Times that Dad memorized. Oh. And so I'd walk into a party in Atlanta, and my father would go, yes, the New York Times sure didn't like my baby boy. Oh. And he would quote the thing from memory. Oh my God. So I had this, you know, but as he would come back, mm -hmm. I, in my way, appreciated it. Whatever he could give me, I went along with. Mm. You know, I think one of the, the themes that, that you bring to life in this book is that art changes you. And certainly books changed you. The great oh. Santini changed your father. As you describe it, he tried to show you up by proving to the world that he wasn't the great Santini. He tried he to show I was a liar. Yeah, and so he became a better person. He was it's great. <laughs> he was great. And it, it's still, my brothers and sisters, I do not know what to make of this. Mm -hmm. uh, he was, his family in Chicago went nuts. Mm -hmm. um, his parents never talked to me again. Yeah. After the, I mean, there was literally suffering because of something I wrote. Mm -hmm. And it's scary. But then... Dad, next thing I know, I'm signing the great Santini. And this is, uh, uh, you know, I'm signing to five or ten people yeah. in Atlanta. And next thing I know, he's sitting beside me. His family had attacked me. Yeah. And there's something about the Chicago Irish. They don't like that. Mm -hmm. Don't attack my son. Mm -hmm. I look over, I see Dad, you know, and he's signing books with me. <laughs> Here's what irritates me, Maureen. The books he signed are worth much more than the ones I signed. You and know he, he's loving that somewhere. Yeah, he's he just, I mean, and he would sign it, I hope you enjoy my son's latest work of fiction. He underlines fiction. And he says, my son, what a vivid imagination. And he would sign it, oh, lovable, likable Don Conroy. Yeah, yeah. And he signed books 
from that day on until the time he died. Did that drive you crazy that yes, he tried he to take ownership? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it's your it's your work, and he's and taking I'd say, ownership. Dad, why are you signing the Prince yeah. of Tides? He said, "Son, I am the source. <laughs> I am the seed." And I said, "Dad, you you make this sound like a sperm lab." <laughs> and but still, he he would do that in. In my way, I realized it was my inarticulate father's trying desperately to tell me he loved me. And he did not have those kind of words. He did not have that kind of articulation. He couldn't do it, Maureen. And so I had to take these little things. And of course, then dad gets in, they make a movie about him. And my father, in his extraordinary modesty, would say, Robert Duvall owes his entire career to me. <laughs> and I said, why, why do you say that, Dad? He said, before he got to play the great Santini, he had no role with meat or bones or sinew or macho. He could get it. I said, you know, Godfather, Coppolis now. He wasn't doing bad, Dad. He said, yes. But I was the one that let them know he could carry a movie. But your dad wanted John Wayne, right? Oh, yeah. it, it, it was this way. It's a shame John Wayne is dead, son. <laughs> Only he could get my extraordinary masculinity across to the American people. I went through crap like this. Yeah. And I'm thinking to myself, Maureen, okay, if I write this, no one's going to play it. Who mm-hmm. plays this? Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I had the movie company send him and dad a telegram saying, we've chosen the actor to play you, Colonel. His name is Truman Capote. (laughs) And my father went nuts. He goes crazy. And I find him strapping on a six-shooter to go out to kill the producer. And who has these kind of things? But you've made an, an extraordinary offer recently yourself. You've made the offer... To Robert Duvall, Blythe Danner, Michael Keefe, the original cast from the Lisa Great Santini. Persky, that's yeah, right. that if that if they, you want them to come back and film the death I, of Santini. Here's what I would love. This yeah. is my dream. Okay, that movie solved something in the horror of my publishing that book. Mm. That was extraordinary. Mm-hmm. Um, my father being Robert Duvall. And he comes roaring up to my apartment, Maureen. He comes flying into my apartment. He had a key in Atlanta. He comes crashing through and he said, Son, you and I were nominated for Academy Awards last <laughs> night. And then he said, Your mother didn't get squats. <laughs> and this to me seems so large. But here's what I'd love to have happen. Uh, it's been, what, 35 years since that yeah. movie came out? I love that movie so much. Yeah. I would like Robert Duvall, Blythe Danner, Michael O'Keefe, Lisa Jane Persky to play these parts they played as fictional roles mm-hmm. as non-fictional characters, mm-hmm. as the real characters. Mm-hmm. I think that could be a magical movie and an unknown movie, and I don't think it's ever been done in Hollywood. You haven't heard anything. Oh, it isn't. Not yet. 
Well, well, we'll lobby for it. Yeah. Well, you know, it's one of those. I told you they could have yeah. it for nothing. Yeah. You yeah. know, I'd give it to them. And so I know, you know, that they're interested. But Hollywood, as yeah. you know, is the strangest place mm. of all. Mm. Mm. And they think I'm nuts because I'm not, you know, asking for money. Right. Right. And offering a screenplay for nothing. Well, it would be extraordinary to film the scenes you give us here, the real life scenes of the death of your parents. Because the, another thing that I was so taken by was how physically you, involved you were in nursing both your mother and your father. And I mean, intimately involved. You, you, you talk about your mom in the hospital. She's suffering from the chemotherapy that her leukemia requires that she have. She's vomiting. She's having all sorts of accidents. You're in there with, the sh- in, with her in the shower, in the hospital, scrubbing her off, scrubbing yourself off. You're doing that real hands-on nursing that makes you very intimate with the bodies of your parents. And again, these are two people who, even your mom, you say, was not really a, a touchy-feely mom when you were growing up. <laughs> the... the the evolution as they get older of your relationship is, is fascinating. And honestly, I still don't get it because for people who were so, especially your dad, who were so vicious, for you to find that in yourself to be able to be their caregiver is, I think, pretty extraordinary. You know, the strangest part, I think, of American family life my American family life, is it amazes me that, and I don't know any of y'all, and Maureen, I don't know you, but these families, I don't know why, they can be the most horrible incubators, crucibles on earth. Yet I have noticed it is hard to keep love out of the equation. And you know, when my brothers and sisters met, when mom started dying, we got together and said, we're going to make mom's death as comfortable as we can. We're going to be involved as we can, and we're going to make her feel as loved as we can. The same thing happened with dad. And we rallied to dad, and no matter how they treated us, uh, we didn't have to be like them. You know, we could, you know, we, they had raised kids. And they had raised children. And I think they were depression parents. And they just, you know, put a roof over our heads, fed us, clothed us, uh, sent us to college. That was what they did. But as children, you know, we were different. They, um, you know, they had, for some reason, we came out with ability to love each other. Mm-hmm. And that's for this book. I mean, my, my, mm-hmm. there, there is no magnificent review I will get from my brothers and sisters. Mm-hmm. But they call up, Pat, what you doing Thanksgiving? Yeah. And I'll say, God, I hope I'm not spending it with you. <laughs> and, you know, they will laugh. And it is, whatever the convoy away was, we sent our parents out, I think, with some magnificence. Yeah, you did. You really did. Uh, I mean, my mom is 94. My God, and, you're so lucky. And, and so I'm speaking as you're so lucky. A, a, an adult child of, of an elderly parent. And I'm, I'm really 
in awe of you for that consistent hands-on care that you, you were able to give. It's remarkable. Um, I've, I feel like you keep trying to crack the enigma of your father, especially in, in all, of, all of your books, but especially in this one. And it seems like one of your answers for, for the, the viciousness, but also um, the humor of his character and the courage that he had as, as a Marine fighter pilot, that one of your answers is the whole military culture that you grew up in, that that helped really shape his character and also helped shape your character as, as, a, as a brat, a military brat. You've written about the culture of military families, and, and I don't think very many other people have explored that culture to the extent that you have. What are the rest of us who are not military brats? What don't we get? about that culture? Well, you know, one thing you don't get is that we're invisible. Mm. You know a million military brats. All of y'all know a million military brats. There are military brats sitting in this audience Mm -hmm. that no one knows who they are. (laughs) They have no idea. We walk into towns, we're invisible. Um, You know, I am ridiculously friendly. Mm. And it is because... we, I went to 11 schools in 12 years. Mm-hmm. So I'd leave one school. I didn't know anybody. I'd go to a new school. <laughs> and so I had a perpetual smile trying to get one friend, mm-hmm. just one friend I could make. And it is one of the loneliest parts, and yet there's a glory to it. You know, there is a, a pride in the father. You know, when, I, when Dad died, none of us knew Dad had won any medals. Mm-hmm. My father had not told us. He'd won one medal. At one time, as I did research for this book, my father was the most decorated Marine Corps fighter pilot in the history of the Marine Corps. And I'm thinking, he never told me. But he, was, he, he bragged about so many other things. Why? Not the important things. Yeah. yeah. Not the things that served our country. Yeah. Not the things he did in the air. And, you know, I always would say, you would not like to be our nation's enemy when Don Conroy passed overhead. Mm -hmm. Uh, When he was dying, he told me he planned the nuclear destruction of Red China. Mm. I had no idea. I said, Dad, how did they get the biggest jerk in the Marine Corps (laughs) to plot the destruction of the largest, most populous nation on Earth? I mean, this even sounds... And every time I say this, Maureen, it sounds too much for fiction. Mm-hmm. You know, and who are these people I have? My father was checked out to carry nuclear weapons. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was, my mother danced at the White House, coming from the biggest redneck background you can imagine. And she lied to us. Mm-hmm. I felt my mother was a Southern Belle sort of like Scarlett O'Hara. She identified with Scarlett O'Hara. I thought mom was, you know, came from this. Yeah. And when she was dying, she even told my stepfather that we had been from the largest slave-owning family hmm. in Alabama. And I'm sitting, I'm sitting there looking. And I said, the largest slave-owning family? <laughs> so we own more plantations than any family yeah. in Alabama. They stretch from the Chattahoochee 
to, and my mother was always specific, to the Mississippi River. And I'm going, no kidding, that's incredible. I said, what happened to that family, Mom? Because I've met their, you know, the people that came after them. Something terrible happened to the family. <laughs> and my mother said to me, and I always loved her, she said, the woe. I said, the woe? <laughs> and she said, the civil woe. <laughs> and I said, man, that woe must have been hell. It must have been horrible, Mom. Now tell me after, because the woe, and I said, then what happened? She said, the depression, it was horrible. The depression. And then you young people don't understand the depression. You know, right. we've all been through right. this. And you young, spoiled, ridiculous young people do not understand the depression. And I said, okay, Mom, after the depression. <laughs> okay, the woe, the horrible woe. <laughs> the depression, it was awful, it was terrible. You didn't have nothing to eat. And I said, why after the depression and the woe, could none of your relatives read or write? <laughs> could you explain this to me? Why couldn't they, why were they illiterate? But do you, do you think that, what shall we politely call it, that self-mythologizing, is that maybe also connected to moving every year and trying to almost reinvent yourself to a new group of friends? And, and Maureen, what your mother was doing? I think it is that. Yeah. I think it is something else. Okay. I think my mother was the first fiction writer in the family. I think she made up a life for herself. A life, you know, I had no idea until this book. Uh, that, you know, there's a picture in this book, a photograph. I saw that, and it's my grandfather in his family. It shocked me. I mean, I'm thinking, <laughs> I'm related to that. It, you know, it looked like James Agee's pictures. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I mean, these people look, holy God almighty. Yeah. And they looked like they all drowned on the Mayflower and then were somehow resurrected. Uh, none of them wore shoes. And these are my direct relatives. Yeah. And very few could read or write. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think another solution, tem- that you have for your dad's character, you know, this, this strange character of his, is, is that he's Irish, or he was Irish. Yes. And, and this, that part of the book, of course, interested me for obvious reasons, given my name. I mean, you, you write about a couple of trips that you took to Ireland, and on the first trip, I think it is, a man in Dublin tells you that if you had been born in Ireland you would not be celebrated. And, he, and you said, the Irish are great debunkers of each other. Had you ever heard that phrase? I had not heard that phrase, but boy, that attitude is really familiar. I mean, it's familiar from my, my childhood. It's also familiar from Pete Hamill's memoir, A Drinking Life, from J.R. Moringer's memoir, The Tender Bar, these memoirs about growing up Irish, and the attitude is always, who do you think you are? You know, you better... And I have had that and didn't know where it came from. Yeah. I mean, it just... <clears throat> my mother... And I don't know the Chicago Irish. Dad never took us there. Mm-hmm. He never told me one thing about being Irish. Mm-hmm. He would get drunk on St. Patrick's Day and beat us all up. 
and so I considered that like crystal knocked. You know, you know we, all, we all had to hide on St. Patrick's yeah. Day. But we, and we, I remember going as a little boy to Chicago to meet my grandmother and grandfather. Mm-hmm. My mother's first time she met them. Yeah. And all I remember was my uncles, my hideous Irish uncles, uh, IQs of 85, <laughs> you know, staring down and going, Hi, you, Pat. Y'all want some grits? Y'all want to eat some grits? And I remember my mother crying going up the stairs that they were on her about her accent. Mm -hmm. We never went back there. My grandparents, you know, my my grandfather would say, I only remember meeting him once over, and he said, James Fenimore Cooper. Pat, read James Fenimore Cooper. It's all there. Well, <laughs> right before he died, he's 86. Or so I said, Grandpa, did you ever read my books? And my grandfather said, Pat, I didn't need to. I'd read James Fenimore Cooper. <laughs> <laughs> and so the Irish, yeah. um, and I'm sure my dad's family is going to be very angry at me, mm-hmm. but it was always, and it will be debunking you know, when I get up there, it'll be, who do you think you, are, you, think you are when I get up there? Mm-hmm. And in the South is, my God, he learned to read and write. <laughs> How fabulous. Yeah, yeah. But it's the, very different. It is different. The, the, I think the greatest compliment that my family could give anyone was that he or she didn't put on any airs, right? What is this yeah. all about? I don't know what it's about. <laughs> it's, it's something about, you know, staying down, keeping your head down. And it, is, it, it got to all of us, yeah. and we didn't know how. It came through the bloodstream. Yeah. Uh, our mean humor mm-hmm. came through mm-hmm. the bloodstream. None of my southern relatives were like this. Right. Yeah. Um, and we, we simply did not know where it came. It was only when I started writing this book that I said this Irish thing is a strong and powerful current mm-hmm. in a human life. Yeah. And I know nothing about. Well, another benefit, maybe, of being Irish, I'd like to think, is that you do have a literary gift or, 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 or yearning toward um, you know, being poetic, seeing things in a, in a poetic way. I love how you talk about literature in, in this book and in, in your autobiography about your reading life. And there's one passage that you, you uh, wrote about in that, mem- that other memoir where you say that one thing that you love about books is that a great writer can make you step outside yourself. And the passage starts, here's what I love. When a great writer turns me into a Jew from Chicago, a lesbian out of South Carolina, or a black woman moving into a subway entrance in Harlem, turn me into something else great writers of the world. I'm completely with you on that power of literature to take us outside of ourselves. We walk in somebody else's shoes. And yet you must know that these days, certainly in the academy, there's a lot of conversation about, well, writing can be a window, great books can be a window into someone else's life, but they should also be mirrors. Students want to see themselves mirrored in literature. And 
I wonder what you think about that argument, especially since you've had the experience of being a white teacher in a classroom full of African-American kids. Do you think it was important for them at the time that you were teaching to read books about people who looked like them? Or would you still argue for the greater power of you know, being taken out of yourself by well, books? Well, you know, I don't give a crap about any of that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it is you've told me more about being Irish tonight than I've ever read mm. and I go where I go to where it changes my life yeah. you know I walk in the Tolstoy I've been yeah. in love with Anna Karenina my whole life I've been in love with Isabel Archer mm-hmm. in Portrait of the Artist as a young man I have loved Middlemarch, and I have loved, you know, in, I don't, you know, in, take all of Middlemarch's characters, make them black, yeah, yeah. make them Jewish, make them hermaphrodite. I don't care if they have penises, vaginas, yeah. I adore them. Mm-hmm. And that is what literature is for me. Mm-hmm. And if you're a young black student and you need to read about young black people, mm-hmm. shame on you. Mm-hmm. Um, do I need to read about all white people? No, I don't. Uh, I can read Beloved. You know, I can read the great African novelist. Mm-hmm. I can read the great Middle Eastern novelist. Uh, I rose, in the, look at the times I was raised. Yeah. I was raised in the racist, most horrible South. You'd have hated Louisville mm-hmm. if you'd come at the time I was born. Mm-hmm. Uh, you would have hated my town. Uh, the racism was unbelievable, unforgivable. Jim Crow was awful from beginning to end. But let me pick up a book. Let me just pick up a book. And you can be anybody on earth. And you can change my whole life with it. And I don't care if it's Don Quixote. I don't care if it's Shakespeare. Yeah. Uh, but the time I grew up, Look at it now. There were no women writing when I started out. None. I started at Houghton Mifflin. There were no women writers. Few women editors. Women then swept through publishing. Well, they were swept. writing, but they weren't recognized as they the great writers. They were not, I mean, yeah. not even, I mean, not even on the stage yet. But you, you make a great case for Margaret Mitchell. You know, you, Gone with the Wind. You say it's the book that, that made you want to become a writer, that changed your life. My mother read it to me when I was five years old. Mm-hmm. It changed my mother's whole life. My mother, who pretended she was Scarlett O'Hara, yeah. and by the way, at her funeral, and my mother's called Peggy Conroy. Mm-hmm. The funeral, her new husband says, here's what we're putting on her grave. It is Francis... Margaret Conroy and Peggy. Mm-hmm. And I said, her name's not Margaret, her name's not Peggy, it's Dorothy. <laughs> and he says, I'm sorry, Pat, you're wrong. I went over this with your mother. I said, I don't care if you went over with my mother or not, John. I know my mother's name. <laughs> okay, and we were both crying. Yeah. We were both, and so he said, this is what I'm putting on, Pat. So 
This Frances M. Peggy Conroy is on her grave. Uh -huh. I found out when I went back from Aunt Helen and Aunt Evelyn, when she read Gone with the Wind, she identified so much with Scarlett O'Hara. Mm. And she said she would not die starving like we were in the Depression. Mm -hmm. She was going to be like Scarlett O'Hara. And that was going to be the theme of her life, the first book she ever read me, What I Did Not Know. She changed her name to Frances Margaret Conroy Peggy after Peggy Mitchell. Oh, interesting. And that is how strong literature is. Yeah. And I've always said, too bad mom didn't like Ulysses. <laughs> you know, so she could name herself Molly. Mm -hmm. But that is not what happened to yeah. my mother or her history. Yeah. And she was a poor Southern girl. Mm -hmm. But that is what literature can do. Well, you speak so powerfully to literature and, and the way it can change people. You, you don't have such great things to say, Pat, about book critics. And I wanted to ask you about that. <laughs> you, don't, you say that you've laid a lot of roses at the grave of Thomas Wolfe, but you haven't laid one rose at the grave of a critic. Haven't we been good to you? <laughs> you know, I'm w looking forward to your death, Maureen. <laughs> when there are going to be more flowers <laughs> oh, okay. on your tombstone okay. <laughs> than you can imagine. That's, it is just making, being a book reviewer is just a way of making a living. And it's a way we get through it. Oh, man. And, you know, and you're, you're in agony and you're in pain over this. What about Edmund Wilson? Uh -huh. Were it not for Edmund Wilson, we wouldn't have had the Fitzgerald revival. Don't critics sometimes help us see the glories of writers who we may not have here's, rec here's recognized? What I love, here's what I love about Edmund Wilson. I follow his sex life. Oh, well. <laughs> and I admire the way he treated his women. And, you know, what a marvelous guy. If, I think feminism began with that guy after I read his thing. Yeah. He is okay. I read Axel's um, again. Axel's Castle. Yeah, Axel's Castle. I read it again. And read it. Eh. Hmm. You know, I read it the first time when I was in college. Okay. I thought it was fabulous. But I read it again, and it just seems, okay, mm -hmm. it dates too mm -hmm. fast for me. Yeah. It so criticism dates. Although and I'm his novels stink. Yeah, no. Okay. Yeah. Let me, let me do say that. Yeah. They, they're not any good. Yeah. yeah. Okay, now go ahead. I like this conversation. <laughs> well, I was happy to see that on your blog, you wrote a beautiful encomium to Christopher Hitchens. You seem to appreciate his, his critical style. I never met him. Yeah. And, you know, it so was, it's only critics you haven't met who you like. <laughs> you know, and now, Maureen, you will be savage material. Yes, that I, I, will be. Am, I think so. <laughs> And, you know, it's one of the things, I've always liked that guy. Yeah. And I always thought he was uh, a great spirit. Mm -hmm. How many people, okay, now this is, uh, now here's a brave man to me. How many people would write a book mauling Mother Teresa? <laughs> you were going to say that. <laughs> I mean, you know, you've got to be a very special guy. Do you know what he wanted to call the book the first time? What? Sacred Cow. 
Good God. <laughs> oh my God. He, he had no shame. He was. Holy yeah. God Almighty. Yeah. <laughs> this is. Uh, I never knew my father wrote criticism. <laughs> Are yeah, you kidding? Not kidding. Not oh, kidding. my God. Yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> you, you're also, it seems like you're not the greatest fan of your own kind, fellow writers. And I think... Oh, they're horrible. <laughs> Are you, yeah. you know, and you've met them, please. <laughs> Present okay. company accepted. No, 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 no. You don't have to do that. You know... We are monsters. You tell hysterical stories about your first writer's conference and meeting oh. Audrey and Rich. Oh, and she was horrible. Yeah, yeah. She kicked you out, you and the other men out of the Here it is. Okay, I go because of Adrian and Rich. You know, it was a time of feminism. Yeah. It's 1976. And we should say you identify as a, as a feminist. Or yes, a I do. Yes. The first Southern male ever to identify as a feminist. Yeah. I suffered outrageous slings because of that. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he says he's a feminist, my God. Mm-hmm. You know, this is a, you know, that macho monster that, and you know, but I, I went to the writer's conference, my first one, I was yeah. excited. You know, great writers were there. Um, Alice Walker was yeah. there. I was being there, she was horrible. Uh, <laughs> then, you know, I was gonna meet Adrian Rich. Mm-hmm. And, you know, tell me a better title than Diving Into the Wreck. Yeah. I mean, I thought, oh, my God. And I thought, that's what I must do as a fiction writer. I must dive into the wreck. So I went out to get coffee for these women writers that I knew in Atlanta. And it took a while. It just took a while. And so I go back in, and I've got all these eight cups of coffee in hot so they're spilling on my hands, but I'm looking down, I'm walking in, and I hear a hissing begin. So the and it sounds like a Noah's Ark of snakes. And it gets louder as I get closer. So Betsy Scott, a poet I knew, comes running up, takes it, and says, Adrian has kicked all the men out of her conference, uh, they're hissing you. I look up and 150 women are standing up hissing my poor fat behind. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm looking around and I run, I race out of there. So, you know, I've always looked at writers, you know, since then, because I want to love them. Mm -hmm. You know, I want to fall in love with the writers I love. And it's just, it's a necessity for me. It's a weakness of mine. Mm-hmm. But I do, I do. See, you've got that way, you know, Mario, you can look. Because, you know, you've developed that critical thing. <laughs> I, no, I, I want to be a I, fan. I, I want to worship. I can't do it. I just cannot do it. <laughs> yeah. And the writers I've met, and, you know, they're all kinds. Mm. And some of them are just monsters. And I don't who, like Who have them. you liked? Who have you personally liked? Okay, now here's a, okay, I've got friends. All right. yeah. These are my friends. They get mad if I don't mad. Ann River Siddons, Terry Kay, you know, all the guys I grew up with. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I do that. Let's see, who have I met that I really liked? Hmm. <laughs> that I really, really liked. Hmm. There's a guy named Ron Rash yeah. that I adore. 
because he's a mountain man who says nothing. Mm-hmm. My <laughs> wife, uh, Cassandra King. You're married to a I really, I'm married, but that doesn't mean I like her. Okay, <laughs> so this, but you know, she is, uh, she's the quietest person I've ever met. She doesn't say a word. And, but she's very, very nice mm-hmm. in, in this way. And I know I've met some others, but mostly, I mean, oh, Ann Patchett last night. Mm-hmm. I met her last night. Mm-hmm. Huh. I mean, she's beautiful, lovely, ethereal, intellectual. And she's, you know, like you ask me questions, and, you know, and, you, you know, and she's like this. And, and I felt like a booger on stage with her. And I, I'm sitting with her, and she is just... And so, but she was very nice. Mm-hmm. And I always look for that, Maureen, yeah. just, you know, that one thing. Yeah. Or somebody that will tell me something that you told me about the Irish. Mm. Somebody that will reveal something to me I always treasure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, I, I'm, I'm with you that sometimes it's better to meet writers on the page rather than in person. Present company accepted, of course. <laughs> but I, I think sometimes we, you know, we, you put your best self on the page or you put your truest most vulnerable voice on the page, and then in person, you're more guarded. But why? I don't know. We're all fragile human beings. I don't know why. Yes. <laughs> I don't know why. But I'm not as fragile in Kentucky as I am other places. <laughs> well, well, can I, on the subject of fragility, I know you write about having been in, in uh, therapy for years and years. Do you, how has that changed you, do you think, in, in terms of your writing? Being in therapy? Yeah. I'm not dead. Mm. It has changed me that way. Mm. Uh, there's a woman named Catherine Clark who's doing an oral biography of me now. Huh. And I called my therapist, the shrink of my life, Marion yeah. O'Neill. Yeah. And I said, Marion, I'm doing this oral biography. I'd like it to be honest. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't know, Maureen, if I've ever been honest. Mm-hmm. I just want to tell you, I don't know if what I'm doing to you and to this is yeah. some kind of act that I have developed. Mm-hmm. But I'm trying in this oral biography to be honest. So I called my shrink in Massachusetts. She's retired now. And I mm-hmm. said, Marion, I want you to tell this woman everything hmm. that you remember. Now, the mistake I made, she's remembering far too much. <laughs> but I thought it would be a good thing for me to yeah. remind me yeah. of why I went into therapy. And I'm suicidal. I've been suicidal yeah. for much of my life. And <clears throat> I've been depressed. Mm-hmm for a you know, large amount of my life in Marion O'Neill, and it was a talking cure mm-hmm. that I think saved my life. And these books that I end up writing because of it. And I think these two things were absolutely essential for me. Mm-hmm. And of course, my father said, the only people who read my son's books are, <laughs> he had a list that changed. He would say, all psychiatrists, homosexuals, uh, lesbians, he didn't know there was a difference. He would say super liberals, women. <laughs> and 
And yeah. he would go through this long. Anyone who wasn't like him. <laughs> it was just, it was completely like this. Yeah. And Marion O'Neill has come back and says, Pat, it has all been your father and your strange love of your mother mm. and your irrational attachment to your mother. You can't even criticize her now. Mm. Mm. So she's been very helpful in this. Yeah. Yeah. But I would not be alive if she had not found me in Atlanta, Georgia, when I was suicidal mm -hmm. in 1975. Mm -hmm. yeah. And because of the therapy, I know you, ha you gave up drinking a while ago. Yes. Drinking seems to be so much a part of so many writers' rituals. Did it change the way you approached writing, not being able to drink? I know a lot of writers like to tamp down the nervousness of mm -hmm. facing the blank page, whatever, by having a drink. Did, was that part of your ritual, drinking? You, uh, you, know, it's, you know, I had to quit drinking to stay alive, too. Mm -hmm. it's, um, I had things like my liver screaming out at me, my kidneys disliking me. Yeah. And so if I was going to live and see my grandchildren married, I, mm -hmm. and I had to go through all that. Yeah. So I quit drinking. It's been very good for me, I think. Mm -hmm. It has hurt my personality. <laughs> <clears throat> it has damaged my writing irrevocably. <laughs> and I don't enjoy life half as much as I used to. <laughs> and can you imagine the agony of coming to Kentucky and not drinking? <laughs> it's just, it's just, my, my room is paved with bourbon. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. Well, I'm, I'm sure the, the love you feel from the audience makes up for the, for the lack of bourbon. <laughs> oh, no. No, no. It doesn't touch it. <laughs> you know, when, when I began reading The Death of Santini and I got to the end of the prologue that you write here, I... I I actually, I stopped for a minute, I reread it, and then I stopped reading for a while because I think the end of your prologue is so powerful. And you talk about the reason why you're going back to this story. Um, it almost sounds a little bit like it's therapeutic for you to mm -hmm. keep coming back to this story and, and again, trying to figure out your parents and where you are in the whole family romance. So I, I wonder if you wouldn't mind reading it for us. I'd be delighted. Yeah. What did you say this thing was? It's... Uh, <laughs> I oh, here it is. They, yeah, they, marked, it. they marked it. <clears throat> Mom and Dad... I need to go back there once again. I've got to try to make sense of it one last time. A final circling of the block. A reckoning. Another dive into the caves of the coral reef where the mores wait in ambush. One more night flight into the immortal darkness to study the house of pain a final time. Then I'll be finished with you, mom and dad. I'll leave you in peace and not bother you again. 
And I'll pray that your stormy spirits find peace in the house of the Lord. But I must examine the wreckage one last time. Honestly, what I, what I thought, Pat, when I read that the first time is knowing how your other books often stirred you up or else made you very depressed in the act of writing them. I really felt like, well, I hope, I hope this book does it for you. I hope, I hope it lays to rest some of, the, some of the demons and I hope it has that effect. Thank you so much for talking to me today. Thank you, Maureen.